Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. In 2018, the award-winning young adult author Aisha Saeed wrote the novel Amal Unbound, told from the perspective of a 12-year-old girl living in a Pakistani village who wants to be a teacher. It's a story of female empowerment and a quest for equality and education. We'll hear more from the author later this hour. First, Black Voices from Big Brown is a creative and ambitious project at UPS, chronicling the experience of 29 current and former Black executives at the company. Longtime journalist and UPS communications expert April Nelson helped to spearhead the project. She joins us now with Nikki Clifton, president of Social Impact at the UPS Foundation. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much. April, how did you first become involved with UPS? Well, uh, I was coming off of a journalism career. I'd like to call it successful. I started out in radio, just like your program, and that was my favorite thing. And then I got into television, had a great career, a long career, actually, in South Florida, as well as the Atlanta market. I worked at Fox 5. I worked at CBS 46. Yes. Took a few years off from that to figure out what I was going to do next in my life. UPS came a-calling. So I I took advantage of the opportunity, not quite knowing what I was getting myself into. But once I figured out they were not going to require me to drive a package car, I thought, well, I can do this. (laughs) How did your background in journalism help you with the project Black Voices from Big Brown? Oh, that is a fantastic question. I think it was the thing that made me know that I could do it, right? This whole thing started with one of the honorees featured in the book, Ken Jarvis. He was recognized as our first African-American package car driver at the company. He was hired in 1957. And he and I have become very good friends. He's, he's not only my friend, but my mentor. And we talk all the time. And in 2019, He called me up. I knew that he had been trying to write his memoirs. And he said, April, I need to finish this and I really need your help. 
because of my journalism background, I knew that I could guide him. I'd never written a book, but I knew I could help him figure it out. And that's where this whole thing started. Wow. How did Ken advance from delivering packages to becoming a UPS executive? Ken, being uh, recognized as our first African-American package car driver, I was actually working on another project when I met him. And it was the project was about UPSers who actually knew and had a relationship with our founder, Jim Casey. And he told a story about, um, you know, being a driver. And then in his mind, it was sort of a promotion. He got a little more uh, money, but he was delivering mail, right? He went from being a driver to delivering mail. And he had to deliver mail to Jim Casey's office one day. And Jim said, sit down. He was on the phone, but he said, sit down, let's talk. Hmm. And he had a long conversation with our founder and very few people got a chance to talk to our founder in that way. And I think he said a lot of people didn't even believe him, but it was that relationship with our founder that just, it deepened and they formed a partnership, sort of a mentor-mentee like partnership. And he started advancing through the ranks and that's how it happened. Impressive. Would you talk about the different media you use to showcase the stories of these 29 African-American leaders at UPS? Yeah, this started out as a Black History Month project. We started on it January of 2020, and it was supposed to be a Black History Month project for this year. And we said, we're going to do a book right? And Ken Jarvis's wish was to have a book. And again, it wasn't quite what he had in mind. He was going to make it just his story. And I said to him, I, I said, Ken, if you write a book, it needs to be about the tree that bore the fruit. You are the tree and you have bore, if I'm saying that correctly, you, you, you bore so many fruits. There's fruit all over the ground. And those are the UPSers who have followed your path. And so once he locked around that idea, I had to figure out how to push it forward. And so I pushed it forward through the African-American DRG as we were trying to find a really marquee project, something really important and substantial for Black History Month of 2021. Little did we know the Black Lives Matter movement was going to happen in the middle of this project. And that's when we knew it, it took on a whole different meaning from there. Wow. Would you explain the acronym? The African American Business Resource Group. At UPS, we have a lot of acronyms for like almost everything. So we call our business resource groups just the BRGs. There's the women's, women's leadership development. There's the um, Hispanic BRG. They call it Crescer, um, the Asian BRG. We have a number of them. What does behind the scenes of Black Voices examine? Uh, the behind the scenes of our production. That's, that's what it sort of examines. If you're talking about the behind the scenes clips that are on the website, we show some photographs that we took as, say, some of our honorees were getting ready in the green room, things like that. It was just sort of some things that did not quite make the book, if you will, or didn't make any of the videos, just so that people could really see the honorees as fun and human. And you have a podcast you're offering as well. 
Yes, yes. In addition to our hard copy book, we have the e-publication. And then on the website, the podcasts are available. Those are introduced by Jason Martin. He's one of uh, my UPS uh, African-American BRG colleagues who helped to uh, co-create the project and, and shape it and move it along. So we allowed him to introduce each one of the interviews via a podcast, and those can be heard on SoundCloud, Apple Music, and Spotify. Nikki, you are the president of Social Impact and the UPS Foundation. What is the UPS Foundation? What kind of work do you do? Well, I just took the helm of the foundation in November, And we exist to lead the company's global citizenship efforts and corporate social impact. I'm excited that this year we will celebrate 70 years of work that reflects our mission to build safer, more resilient, and inclusive communities around the globe. And so we do this through centering around four core areas, health and humanitarian relief. So think about all the things that UPS is doing to advance the vaccine around the world. Equity and economic empowerment. Local community engagement is marshalling our brown army of more than 500,000 UPSers through volunteerism in local communities. And then planet protection, which is our environmental stewardship. And we've got a goal of planting 50 million trees by 2030. So we really think that the best way to give back to the communities where we live and where we work is to marshal our collective strengths that link our philanthropic dollars with our logistics expertise, our transportation assets, and then the skills and passions of our people. How is UPS advancing equity and justice internally and externally? This has been an amazing journey that that we've been on in partnership with the work that April just described, really since the unfortunate murders of George Floyd and Ahmaud Aubrey and Breonna Taylor. We have always valued diversity and inclusion as a core mission, but our work really accelerated in the last year. And we were inspired by the call to action of our new CEO, Carol Tomei, who recognized that, that we needed to examine how to be better both internally and externally. And in terms of doing that, we created a people-led initiative called the UPS Equity, Justice, and Action Task Force. And I chair that task force. And we were a cross-functional group that's formed to expedite solutions to make UPS stronger internally, while also leveraging our scale and scope in the battle of systemic inequality externally. You have your work cut out for you, as the saying goes. We really do. And, um, you know, I'm really proud of some of the things that we've done. For example, right there in Georgia, we have helped to advance the hate crimes legislation that was passed in June of 2020. We've done a lot of work to try to make sure that, that Georgia is no longer one of the four states that did not have a hate crimes bill. And we're continuing to support that legislation in Arkansas, South Carolina, and Wyoming. We've also launched a Drive the Vote campaign internally. It was our first nonpartisan voter engagement and education for our UPSers. And then continuing, of course, to fund our longstanding partners like the National Urban League, the NAACP, and forming new partnerships with the Equal Justice Initiative and the National Museum for African-American History and Culture. 
So we're really excited about the opportunities to, to really take a look internally at our own workforce and make sure that UPS is a place that people want to continue to work and feel excited about bringing their whole selves to work, but also that we use our logistics capabilities and our influence to lead others in the fight against systemic inequality. What were your thoughts when you found out April was creating this project? You know, initially I thought, this is awesome because we had not seen any real effort as a collective to honor the African-Americans on the shoulders. You know, I stand on their shoulders. I've been at UPS for 17 years and I thought this is ambitious, but this is awesome. And, and <laughs> how can we, how can we help? That was my immediate thought. <laughs> oh, wow. You mentioned how you had no idea in January 2020, that we would face the tragic deaths and escalating reckoning with racial injustice in our country and globally. How is this project reflective of the larger scope? I think that this project, one, is a recognition of the Black excellence that we've had at UPS for so many decades. And I think telling those stories, and April has done such a beautiful job of highlighting you know, folks that have started as loaders, unloaders, drivers, sometimes part-time clerks, and really showing that climb and the ability to achieve at the highest levels of our company when people are just given a chance. And I think that's what this is about, showing that opportunity and opening the door without respect to race produces excellence. You just have to invest. And that's what, that's what this project has highlighted for us. Well, we hear so much the expression being seen. I'm thinking about the story April told of Ken Jarvis being in your founder's executive office and just being asked to sit down and to become acquainted and what a difference that makes on so many levels, on the individual's life and for the betterment of the organization. I think that's right. And when I think about the opportunity that that April has opened up for others in our company to see the leaders that came before them, and then hopefully to see the promise and the leaders that are right here in our midst. I think that's the beautiful piece of this project. And it has attracted and I think raised awareness and pride, not only in our Black workforce, but in our entire workforce. And I think that's really, really powerful. The other thing that we really wanted to highlight and showcase with this project is the fact that UPS has been working at diversity and all of the other things that come along with it for a lot longer than many companies. And the thing that I asked all of the honorees during their interviews is where do you see UPS? Where's our place? during this time in history. And all of them said, we should be the leader. We should be showing companies how we have done it. Maybe not perfectly, but this is what we have been working on since the 50s, when many of these folks 
told stories about not even being able to get jobs at other companies because of the color of their skin. Ken Jarvis, one of them, when he returned from his stint in the Air Force with a letter from the California Highway Patrol promising him a job upon his return when he went for his interview. He showed them the letter, but they said, we do not hire Negroes. He was able to go to the Urban League and get some help, and they directed him to UPS. So UPS hired him during a time when he could not be hired by so many other companies that he went to, knocking on those doors. So we want to highlight the fact that UPS has been a leader in this space, and we want to continue to be a leader. In 1998, Ken Jarvis created the March Foundation, and the projects from Black Voices at Big Brown will benefit March. What does the March Foundation support? Well, in addition to a number of community activities, the main thing that we've agreed that the proceeds from this project will go to is to fund scholarships for historically Black colleges and universities. The March Foundation was built upon that principle initially, and then it sort of expanded over the years. And I can tell you during COVID, this foundation has been instrumental in several communities, helping with food shortages, food banks across the nation. There are so many Americans struggling right now. They've been providing meals. They've been providing computers for middle school, elementary school, high school students, and internet connections so that they could continue to study. It's things like that. They've done voter registration drives, a number of community initiatives. I'm thinking about your asking the honorees where the company should be. In terms of the company or the foundation being a role model for all others, Have you thought about working with other companies or corporations to create something similar for them? I've definitely been thinking about it. And the AABRG, we're making some traction and forming some partnerships with other company affinity groups and trying to share the book and communicate what we're doing. But maybe Nikki can expound upon it. But yes, it is our desire to share this work and inspire other companies. I mean, we're not saying that everybody's got to do the exact same thing, but it's to take the core mission and the ingredients, if you will, from this project and then develop them even further. To be a template of sorts. Yes. Yeah. And I I think, you know, what's unique about UPS is, you know, as April has talked about that, that we have for decades been a source of economic development, particularly in the African-American community. And I think about one of the honorees that was just honored in April's book, Cal Tyler, who recently donated $20 million to Morgan State University. And so when you think about that, the multiplier effect of investing early on in people and having that community mindset, then you end up developing leaders like the men of the March Foundation who then give back to their communities in ways that you, know, you just can't even imagine. It is so uplifting. Nikki Clifton, April Nelson, Thank you so very much for sharing these stories and congratulations on your work. 
Thank you so much. And we encourage people to check out the book, order it, listen to the podcast, www.blackvoicesfrombigbrown.com. Thank you so much for having us. Nikki Clifton, president of Social Impact and the UPS Foundation. She was joined by April Nelson, co-creator and project lead. You can find more information about Black Voices from Big Brown on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. In honor of Women's History Month, we're revisiting my conversation with the award-winning young adult author Aisha Saeed. In 2018, we spoke about her novel Amal Unbound, a story from the perspective of a 12-year-old girl living in a Pakistani village. I asked Aisha Saeed if knowing the story of Malala Yousafzai helps readers appreciate Amal Unbound. So for me, I was thinking about writing a story for, um, for many years, and I knew I wanted to set it in Pakistan because I feel... That's a very misunderstood country, and the information we get is always one perspective. And so I knew I wanted to write a story about Pakistan, but I didn't know what the story was going to be. And it was in 2012, I believe it was, when uh, Malala was shot by the Taliban. And just like the rest of the world, I stopped and I was following along, seeing what happened. I was rejoicing with everyone when she survived. And then something interesting happened as I watched the narratives and people said, she's so brave. She's, she's this one beacon of light in Pakistan. She's, she's fighting against the norms. And the more and more that conversation kept focusing on Malala, I started thinking about how there's so many girls like her. Um, she is getting a spotlight because she is incredibly brave and inspiring. But there's also many others. And Malala herself says that all the time. She says, there's many other girls like me, and I'm, I'm working on behalf of all brave girls. And so that got me thinking about writing a story about a girl like Amal, who would be brave, who would push against her own personal limits and bounds, but she would never get her name in a headline. Because that is the true reality of people around the world, children around the world, people around the world. We do brave things, we do inspiring things, but people usually will not see us in a headline. And so it was Malala making all those headlines that inspired me to write a story about a girl just as brave, but who would never make headlines. Malala put a face on this grave issue. 
As the book opens, immediately we have the impression that Amal loves school. Which aspects of school in particular? I think Amal already knows, much like the author of the book, (laughs) that she wanted to be a teacher. And she just loved everything about teaching and about inspiring other children. And she knew from that age that she wanted to do that. And so she loved going to school so she could learn and continue to satiate her unending curiosity. And, um, And she wanted to be a teacher, so she loved to observe her teachers. She loved that. And that was inspired a lot from... My days as a second grade teacher, I taught in uh, Clarkston, Georgia. I taught second grade. And uh, I worked with so many children who were refugees from Iraq, Somalia, Afghanistan, and um, and just seeing their insatiable curiosity and desire to learn. They wanted homework. They wanted extra homework on top of that. They just wanted to cram it all in. And um, I thought of them a lot when I wrote her insatiable curiosity. I love how she liked the smell of the chalkboards. <laughs> she liked to help the teacher with the chalkboards <laughs> and um, is reluctant to go home after school. Tell us about Omar. Oh, I love Omar. <laughs> he had a much larger part to play in the whole book. I just loved him so much. But as books tend to go, characters uh, switch and um, and shift and get edited. But um, Omar's her best friend, and she grew up with him. She, they were three days apart in age, and they love doing everything together. And then a time comes, the characters are 12 years old when we meet them in the story, and her mother has told her that the community may whisper and gossip if she's spending too much time with this boy and has told her not to. But it's impossible because they're best friends. He he is just as curious about everything as she is. They love to talk, read books, poetry. And so she and him meet together in secret to continue their friendship. And uh, she notices that the library in the boys' school is much larger than that in the girls' school. Omar takes books from his library to let her read. Mm-hmm. I thought this passage was remarkable. Amal reflects on how unfair it was for God to give me a friend who understood me completely and create him as a boy. (laughs) She's not resentful of her religion or disrespecting it. She's just wondering, what, what is this? all about, but doesn't rebel against that. Well, she sort of rebels because she meets him anyways, but but you're right. I think middle grade, um, that middle grade age, those years are all about exploring what the rules are and starting to question them. So I think she was beginning to question before everything fell apart. But yes, a lot of, a lot of the revelations, for example, realizing that the boys' school has more books, realizing that her parents want a son— fully realizing that later in the story, those are all all realizations that she gets because of her growing awareness of her age. Indeed. The book provides a portrayal of village life in Pakistan, including a a vivid picture of the open-air market. I felt like (laughs) I was there. How closely does that depiction of village life Describe Pakistan today. 
I wrote this book, um, The Village in this book, as well as uh, my previous book, is a young adult written in the stars. Both of those take place at least part in Pakistan in a village. And those were inspired by my own ancestral village. My parents both came from a village in the Punjab region of Pakistan. And so I was inspired by by my ancestral roots to write those stories. And I also make sure to have people who still live there also verify and make sure that everything is the way it is. But yeah, it's it's pretty accurate to how how it is in um in Pakistan in those particular in that particular village. I can't speak for all. They're they're all different and unique, but this was inspired by my parents' village. So the idea of indentured servitude is not exaggerated. Actually, the indentured servitude in Amal and Bound, because it's geared towards children that are 10 and up, is much milder than the reality that indentured servants face, not just in Pakistan, but around the world. Yeah. After her baby sister is born, Amal is expected to help out at home, and she's heartbroken about having to miss school, and her father says... You can read and write. What more do you need to know? Is this the lot of most girls in Pakistan today, or is this strictly urban versus rural, or rural versus urban? Well, that's a good question. I, I can't speak for for that um, to that specifically. I was just writing the story about this particular girl and her family and her village. But yes, I do believe that in the rural rural regions of Pakistan, there's going to be more of a struggle for a girl to get an education than in the urban areas, Lahore, Karachi, Islamabad, all those areas. These this would be a brand new story for them to read and to know that to know about. Yeah. So so I can't speak for all villages or how how it is in all villages, but it is a problem. Girls getting an education is a problem in Pakistan in some parts. And um and I did want to highlight that here the father is supporting her, but the value suddenly shifts when he needs her at home. So he was letting her go to school until it was no longer convenient for him and then he was keeping her home. Who is Khan Saab? Khan Saab is the big bad in this book. He is the local landlord, and much like there are local landlords like him in rural Pakistan, and everybody owes him something in this village. Everybody has, somebody needs to borrow something. There's no bank that people can go to and refinance their home for something or get a loan from a Wells Fargo to get uh, to get their child married off at a nice venue. And so people tend to go to him. And he gives them, but then just kind of like a mafia that you read about in movies and books, uh, they, they'll give it to you, but they want stuff back. They want more back. And soon you start realizing that the more you give, the more is expected. And it just continues to grow and grow until you can never pay back that debt. And so he ultimately not only collects so much money from these people, he holds power over these people because he can punish them for not paying him back. And that is a reality that people are facing. It's not just a stronghold, it's a stranglehold. Amal's world is shattered by her refusal to give up a pomegranate. Mm -hmm. Would you talk about the incident and its outcome? So Amal has been home at that point in the story for about two, three weeks. She's really missing school, her teacher. She is getting very frustrated that her father is just not giving in. And she's frustrated that her mother 
who has postpartum depression isn't recovering fast enough. And so in this moment, her sister comes home from school. Her little sisters are fighting. There's chaos in the house. And she says, I want to get out. Just want some time for myself. And so for the first time in maybe three weeks, she has some alone time. She goes to her open-air market. There's pomegranate there. there. It's not always there. So she's excited. It's one of her favorite fruits. And she buys one. And she's walking home. And she's just looking forward to this one little piece of happiness. And she's thinking of how she'll share it with her siblings, how she'll tell Umar about it. And then she gets hit by a car. And... She, as she recovers, she isn't the injury's not too bad. She gets up, her stuff is everywhere, and this man comes out and pretty much demands that she apologize for hitting her. He says, You hit my car instead of saying, Are you okay or anything like that. And so, suddenly, even though she knows better and she knows that if there's a strange man who's behaving strangely, you should just walk away, when he picks up her pomegranate and says, Oh, I'll just take this, you don't mind and tries to pay her money as though she's a charity case, she just she just comes undone. She's so tired of everyone demanding something from her, her parents, her mother, her sisters. Everybody wants something, and now the stranger wants something. And so in that moment, a very unfortunate moment, she decides to finally speak up and grab that pomegranate and go home. And in that, she upsets the most powerful and most dangerous man in their village. And pays the consequences. When did you feel it was time to write about the issue of indentured servitude? I think indentured servitude is something that's that I've always thought about. I've taken a lot of social justice classes in college. It's something that I was aware of. I've read books on the topic. And so when I was thinking of writing about Amal and Bound and what she would go through, I thought that was a natural, a natural storyline. And also what's really current in Pakistan is that People are fighting back against indentured servitude and against these feudal landlords. It's happening right now. It's not just in the story. It's happening in real life. So I wanted to capture the bravery and strength that people have to take on in order to defeat such a seemingly undefeatable um, figure in their communities and their villages. And so I wanted to kind of capture what's actually happening there. The first biography that Amal reads, she has loved reading poetry up to this point. But the first biography she reads is about Alama Iqbal. Mm -hmm. What does she learn from his life? So Alama Iqbal is the one of the, he's considered to be the, the person who came up with the idea for Pakistan. And um, he's considered in some ways the father of Pakistan in some ways. And so reading his biography after having read his poem, she finally saw that People who write these poems, people who who she's read before, they actually are real people. And not only are they real people, they've done amazing things that she never knew about. And it's kind of a turning point, this book, for her, because she realizes you can be many different things. You don't have to be just one thing. And um, it gave her a lot of pride that somebody from her own country could be a knight and a scholar. And he's a real person. He's not fictional. So I also had double meaning for this to show people that it's not just scary out there. We have Pakistan has knights. We have scholars. We have these amazing people making amazing change. And so it's hopefully educational for readers who are not familiar with the culture. But on a story level, it was inspirational for Amal to know that she, too, could dream big like he did. Dream big and have more than one dream, mm-hmm. I think she says. <laughs> Ultimately, Amal Unbound is a testament to the importance of freedom as well as education. 
It's also a love letter to the written word. Would you read some passages for us, those I have marked? Sure. Those books were what made my days bearable. They were what helped me sleep at night without my homesickness choking me. Without books, what was there to look forward to? I knew learning to read wouldn't change the fact that Fatima was trapped here like I was, cleaning floors, dusting baseboards, and peeling potatoes. But at least by teaching her to read, I gave her a window to see worlds beyond ours and a chance to imagine leaving the walls of this estate and to feel free, even if it was only for a little while. The glory of books. Indeed. Bravery involves risk, and there can be unintended consequences, as in this story. Aisha, how do you address the importance of resistance to 12-year-old readers while also hoping to protect them from danger? Um, no, that's a good question. And and the funny thing is I began writing this story in 2012, and the landscape of our country has in many ways changed. And the conversation about resistance and about doing our part has increased, and I'm glad and I'm grateful for it. I think what I hope and what I wrote in my author's note is that it can feel overwhelming when we're fa- when we see things that are unjust and when we're upset about things. It can feel really overwhelming and you don't know what to do. But the best thing we can do is be local and do what we can within our communities to affect change. We can make change by writing, doing a postcard campaign. We can do all sorts of different um, changes in the way that we can. And so I did feel like it was important to have an author's note to talk about that, about what it is to resist in the ways that we can. I, I talk about it in the context of we don't have to make those headlines. We just doing something even small in our community matters. The award-winning Atlanta-based young adult author Aisha Saeed discussing her 2018 novel, Amal Unbound. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The Ninth Art, Frames and Thought Bubbles, is an exhibition on view at the Zuckerman Museum of Kennesaw State University. The show examines comics as an art form, with a wide variety of visual styles ranging from panels found in newspapers of the early 20th century to contemporary comic images. Ahead of the January opening, I spoke with Gio Sipp, the director of Kennesaw's School of Design and curator. He explained the title of the exhibit. Well, the Ninth Art is a term that has been used, oh, for the past 60, 70 years, I would suppose. And it refers to a lecture that was given by a French philosopher way back in the, in the 19th century, in which he designated seven forms of art, which have now have increased. But the original art forms were architecture, sculpture, painting, music, dance, poetry, and later film, and then television. And comics is referred to as the ninth art. And it's a form of storytelling that has its roots way back in in visual history and visual narrative. But uh, the ninth art is how comics are referred to 
principally in Belgium and in France. And we pay homage to them a little bit because we have a collection of work uh, from our Belgian colleagues who are included in this exhibition. Uh, we have uh, an articulation agreement with Essa Saint-Luc, which is one of the leading design schools in Brussels, and uh, they teach comics and illustration, and our School of Art and Design has an articulation agreement with them. And so we wanted to honor the, the European tradition of the ninth art, as well as celebrate a really encyclopedic um, overview of American comic art that begins at the turn of the 20th century, essentially. It's curious to me that the Franco-Belgian audience is more receptive to embracing art that, at least in the U.S., has harder drawn lines about categories. Well, I suppose that's, that's true in some respects, although I think comics as an American cultural art form are, are really rather significant in its roots. I think we can also look back to Europeans such as Daumier and even Francisco Goya. Honoré Daumier was a 19th century French artist best known for his caricature. Some may know his caricatures of lawyers. He loved drawing those. And much of his work was quite political. Comics are very frequently used today, for example, in infographics. If you are flying on an airplane, your safety card is going to be told in visual narrative. It's going to be sequential art, one image after the next. That's something that doesn't need translation. And as the world gets more pluralistic and connected, visual language becomes more and more important in in terms of our general conversation. So I argue that comics may have been part of a visual language that went back as far as the Etruscans or the Egyptians with their visual narratives. And, and even if we look at stained glass windows and illuminated manuscripts, visual narratives were a way of conveying information and telling stories before uh, people were literate. And in America, comics really became an art form when people were beginning to emigrate from European countries and South American countries, and they were coming to the United States. And so comics originally became a way of helping immigrant populations learn how to read. But not only that, they became a much more uh, aggressive advertising medium. For example, Joseph Pulitzer and William Randolph Hearst with their New York World and New York Journal newspapers, we've heard the term yellow journalism. And uh, yellow journalism essentially began with the competition between those two large newspapers and those publishers to engage readers and subscribers. And yellow journalism referred to very flamboyant and hyperbolic journalism that you might see in, in contemporary British tabloids, uh, where it was very sensational. 
And Richard Altkultz, who is included in our exhibition, created a character named the Yellow Kid and, and a little bit later, Buster Brown. We have a couple of Buster Brown originals in our exhibition as well. And uh, the yellow journalism referred to that hyperbolic journalism and, and the yellow kid, which was um, used to essentially talk about topics of the day. So you had comics being published in both the New York World and the New York Journal that reached particular immigrant populations. For example, the Cats and Jammer kids started out very early and it is written in an idiom that would make sense to early German immigrants to the United States. The, the language, the cadence, the rhythms of speech uh, all spoke to that immigrant population. So it was creating loyalty among audiences, reading audiences, but it was also uh, helping those audiences assimilate into American culture and begin their American experience. So comics plays a huge role in that. And its early development was all about telling stories and narratives that brought together people and their particular human condition. And of course, it's, it's branched from there. When I read that the term the ninth art dates to the 1960s, I thought about the 1960s pop art movement and how artists such as Roy Lichtenstein painted comic book scenes on large-scale canvases, works that are in some of the world's greatest museums and collections. Joe, how do you feel about mainstream modern artists co-opting comic images? Well, that has certainly been a long tradition of artists such as uh, Roy Lichtenstein and even oh, some of the European artists like uh, Sigmar Polka, for example, who is uh, from Germany. I think using popular culture as part of a language that can be translated to more contemporary fine art with a different kind of audience is fine. Yet I've had conversations with some of the artists who created the original images from which Roy Lichtenstein took their work and, and manipulated it uh, just a little bit. Those artists weren't too pleased about it, of course, but I think that there's room in the sandbox for everybody to play. Roy Lichtenstein was taking an image and creating a unique original. He did it with um, some of the 1960s comics, but he also later did a series on, on Blondie, for example, and took some of Chick Young's original Blondie images and, and played with that as well. Um, I, think that's, I think that's absolutely fine. And you see many artists doing that today. But what I find particularly interesting is that you have the Smithsonian Museum, you have the Louvre, you have the Pompidou Center, major international art venues that have opened their exhibitions to surveys of comics or to particular comics artists, recognizing that that language is indeed an important language and a very popular visual language. I read just the other day that 
graphic novel sales surged by 30% in the past year. And interestingly enough, visual fiction, so either manga, which is in Japan, or graphic novels, um, make up a large proportion of the readership everywhere around the world, with the exception of the United States. So the United States is coming along. And I think in American comics, what we are, are used to is what we see in, in contemporary movies, the action films, the Marvel films, the DC films, which are really originally sort of mythological creatures in American cultural history that were created by young Jewish immigrants who were trying to assimilate into America and creating um, heroes that transcended their own personal experiences growing up in dense urban areas where life was very difficult. So Jack Kirby, for example, who created Captain America and Thor and many other uh, popular comics heroes grew up in a tenement in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Will Eisner, who essentially created the American comic book and is known for uh, his character, The Spirit, also grew up as the son of a um, scene painter who uh, painted background scenes for the Yiddish theater. And Will Eisner was an incredible business person and recognized the, the power and impact that uh, reproducing original content of um, comics images could make to consumer society. Well, let's talk about some of the works on display. Please tell us about Little Nemo by Yuko Shimizu. Yuko Shimizu is actually an illustrator, a contemporary American illustrator who works out of New York who did a, a series of pieces based on a reproduction of um, a Little Nemo book that was paying homage to the original Le Little Nemo character. So Little Nemo began in the early part of the 20th century, in the early 1900s, and was created by an artist named Windsor McKay. And we have a couple of his originals in there, and we juxtapose his originals with Yoko Shimizu's contemporary take on that genre. And Windsor McKay was an absolutely brilliant designer, brilliant draftsman. And Little Nemo uh, was a character, a young boy. The stories were about his having dreams at night, fantastical dreams. And the dreams were interpreted in this one page comic format that would run in the Sunday papers. It was beautifully rendered, sensitively drawn, and exquisitely composed. And for a while, Windsor McKay was one of the most popular entertainers and one of the best known people in America. He was so popular that he even had his own Broadway show in which he would go on stage and draw and would show an animation, one of the earliest animations ever shown to a public audience, and that animation was entitled Little Gertie the Dinosaur. And it was a short segment of uh, hand-drawn dinosaur images of a brontosaurus who was wandering across um, 
a background and it was hand drawn and filmed by uh, Windsor McKay. Well, this was astonishing to people because it had never existed before. Remember, this predates film, it predates radio. And so these artists were huge celebrities and they had a public audience that was in the millions. So to see these pieces, which are very fragile and we're extremely fortunate to have them, is a real privilege to look at and see. And uh, one of the pieces that we have is certainly considered in art circles, one of the most familiar of all the little Nemo images. But we also start out with a Francisco Goya and uh, a Daumier lithograph because when I was curating the exhibition, I believed that we needed to look at printmaking as well as a very democratic form of art making. That, that is to say, printmaking was a way to make multiples of images that could be put in front of a large consumer audience and not have to be in a specific gallery. So if you look at the work of the German expressionists in the early part of the 20th century, the German expressionist printmakers would essentially wheat paste their prints all over Berlin and they would satirize uh, contemporary German society at that time and speak to what they thought were the inequities and the abuses of, of the German government and the uh, extremism that the German government was beginning to place on its public. And so I thought it important to include a couple of those prints in the exhibition to segue into what later became a very popular entertainment form. And so our exhibition runs the gamut from an early Popeye and Buster Brown through Little Nemo, Crazy Cat. So we have approximately 140 pieces in the exhibition. It's extremely comprehensive. Artist and Kennesaw State professor Gio Sip is the curator of the exhibition The Ninth Art, Frames and Thought Bubbles. The show is on view at the Zuckerman Museum through May 9. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. City Lights producer is Summer Evans. Our engineer is Shelley Canady. Special thanks to Kevin Brinker. I'm Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. 
You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wab.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.